Welcome back to Pink Noise. I'm your host, Very Sherry. I'm recording on board a floating home that I share with my partner in Seattle, Washington. I would like to acknowledge that we are living on the unceded ancestral lands of the Duwamish people, past and present. I'm coming in hot after a month-long hiatus, while the radio station who broadcasts this program took a well-deserved break to prepare for the grand opening of their new community space. Cafe Racer Radio's co-founder, Cindy Ann, has curated a new lineup of show hosts for the Free to Be Sunday series that begins each week at 10 a.m. And this 43rd episode of Pink Noise is one of two remaining hour-long interviews before we hit our one-year anniversary mark. For the second year, I plan to drill down into specific topics with Pink Noise guests from Season 1 who have become members of the Pink Noise Posse, an intentional collection of transformative healers who have more medicine to share with the world. These new conversations will be shorter in length and shed light on the work that they are here to do. Today, I invite you to close your eyes and tap into your imagination. A world of creativity and play awaits as my guest, Julie Adams, will take you on a journey that will define the method behind her creative genius. I was thrilled that she decided to share the story about the day she claimed her identity as an artist. If you're curious like me, I imagine some of you might even pause this show and Google her name. If that's you, you'll want to spell it J-U-L-I, Adams. If you listen carefully to this episode, you might also hear from her kitty, Peanut. To begin at a place in the conversation that is rarely the beginning, Julie is already raving about a book that had a great impact on her. It was written long ago, and it was the first time she'd experienced an author equally using female pronouns in contrast to male ones, and because of that, felt included in the conversation. This book, The Everyday Work of Art by Eric Booth, he talks about interpretation and how we come to these knee-jerk reactions about things that are happening in our life and the things around us. Um, because that's the way the human mind works. We compartmentalize things. We, we categorize things in order to understand them quickly. And in our world, it happens so fast with such regularity that we have, it's hard to really hold on to or to give, uh, give things any kind of specific attention. But that's what art and creativity is. It's this focus on some on something and um, paying attention to it and understanding it and seeing it in a different way. So for instance, um, Cezanne's paintings of apples, the apples are no longer just apples. They become illuminated. They're, they're taken out of the uh, three-dimensional world and the two-dimensional world described in a very different way. And so how is he getting to this conclusion? And, and the most basic way of understanding it is he's paying attention. He's, he's taking apart little bit by little bit to understand why things look the way that they do in the world and then enhancing those qualities 
to almost put a spirit into the apple. So the apple is no longer just an apple. And so for us, the everyday people who don't consider themselves creators, um, maybe they don't feel like they have permission to, to think of themselves that way. But I think what really it, what it really comes down to is love. It's loving what you love and giving yourself permission to love it, no matter what it is. It could be any any simple observation inside your own mind or outside your own mind, and giving it a kind of attention. And uh, that's what love is. What draws us to things, to the things that we like, the things that we read, the things that we consume, the people that we hang out with, and the relationship that we have with ourselves. And all of those things are so deeply within our control, but it doesn't always feel that way. It feels like we are told to think and behave and live in the world in a certain way, to make money or our occupation or whatever that might be. But I think that really is love is a pathway to understanding our world in a much deeper a much deeper way, in a much broader way. And it also gives us agency for, for the world to make choices about, um, to, uh, make choices because of love instead of, um, instead of the things that we were taught. So love helps us to break away from what belongs to other people and what belongs to us. Hearing this story, Julie, takes me back to a post that you had shared earlier this summer and you were thinking about creativity and what it means and the question of whether or not it's a skill or a talent and how in your mind it's both and you reference someone like MacGyver who finds himself in these dramatic situations and what he needs to do is problem solve and that that is creative play. And so when I hear you leaning on this joy of creative play, I think about this story you wrote because you even shared with us what it was like growing up and that you felt maybe out of place and isolated. And so that your attention went inward. Then you fast forwarded into your adulthood and said that feeling persisted. And so staying inwards and creating your art world was your refuge. And the sentence that just, uh, like, had my jaw on the floor was, in the end, the choice was death or art. Would you be willing to say any more about that? Yeah, absolutely. At the time that I was in elementary school, that my whole um, my whole experience was I was utterly discounted, and not only discounted but deemed to be pretty stupid. And I didn't hear the words "you are intelligent" until I was thirty years old. I didn't even know. I didn't even take into consideration that I was studying Carl Jung when I was seventeen. And I found myself a dream therapist and worked with him for a while to decipher my dreams. And it didn't occur to me that that was because I was intelligent. And so I, you know, the the education system utterly failed me. And so I self-educated by nature. I knew a lot and I had read a lot by the time that I ended up going to college. 
but even that I was just making things all the time. And I loved other people's, what other people were studying more than I do. So I would read other people's texts and self-educating all the way through and making things, making things, making things all the time. But in my twenties, I was just lost. I mean, I was, I was deeply depressed and in an incredibly damaging relationship and um, I, the last job that then when I was in my 30s, I started to do to do the art. There's a whole story of how, how that began. But um, I still felt like I had to work. And the last job that I had, uh, I did something wrong. And my boss was very gentle with me. But th- that day I'd come in and I sat down in front of a computer under, uh, under these horrible, you know, buzzing, blinking lights. And it felt like an eternity had passed. And I looked at the clock, it was 8.02. I was like, I don't, I was just psychologically, I didn't think I could take it. And she came in and said something to me and I just, I just lost, I just started bawling. And I handed her the keys and I said, I have to go. I I have to paint, I can't do this. And on the way home, I caught myself thinking about how I was gonna kill myself. Like the the neatest, cleanest way I could, could do it. And then, I realized I was doing that and I knew how dangerous that was. And I didn't know what to do. I called a friend who was ill-equipped to talk to me about it. And then um, on the little table next to my rocking chair was this book about Modigliani, one of my favorite, most influential for me of my life. And I bought the book because it had beautiful plates or pictures, but I hadn't read it. And it wasn't a very big book. And so I sat down and I read it from front to cover I'm from, from front to back. And, and I realized in that moment, oh, I'm an artist. That's what's going on. And so I had to completely disregard everything I ever knew about what I was supposed to be in the world because now I knew what I was. I'm an artist. <laughs> it, was, it was absolutely remarkable understanding. And it was after that that I... I cornered my mother while, while I was driving. She couldn't, I would always do that as a kid, as I would say things I needed to say to her when she was driving, she couldn't escape. And I told her, I said, I'm going to be an artist and I don't want to hear another negative word from you. And she was quiet for a while and she said, okay. And from then on, she was my biggest champion. And that's how I got my career started. <laughs> yeah, it's remarkable. It was remarkable. And for me, that was that was an effort of a lot of hard work that I had done very much under the scenes, even really not even knowing why I was doing it. So when I was in college, I would write letters to people. And sometimes um, I had lots of friends that wrote letters too, because I was, you know, pre, pre-internet. Um, and I would make lists of things I loved, lists, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of things that I loved, whether it was a short description or a word or a long, a long paragraph about something. And it would take me weeks to write them. Um, no precursor, no, no subject matter, just lists of things that I loved and send them off. And so I was very attuned to the things that I loved. And so by the time I had made this monumental decision to live and to be an artist, all I had to do was tune into things that I loved. And that was it. I was off and running. <laughs> I'm fascinated by this change in relationship with your mom. Yeah. That what it took was for you to define yourself in a way that was so undeniable, so inarguable, that she was compelled to see you as you saw yourself. 
and no other view was possible anymore. That's exactly how it was. And I'm not sure. I think sometimes when energetically someone makes a, a choice like that, people fall in line. And then it went from her always saying, and she would try to minimize the when she would say to me, I just think you should get a little job. And I'm like, I'm going to kill you. Of course, I would, you know, I was just, I just hated it when she said things because it was such a disregard of who I was. And then I realized she doesn't know who I am. I don't know who I am. But in that moment, I did. And she knew it. And my boyfriend was sitting in the back and his eyes got white too. And he knew it too. And so after that, people started giving me art supplies. People who had gotten disillusioned with being an artist. And so I had amassed this enormous amount of art supplies. So I literally had everything I needed to get going. Just by declaring. Yeah. People because, knew it. because the universe wants to support people who are on their path. Right. And it just took for you to realize who you are. And then the floodgates opened up. Exactly. Because this is how you're meant to serve. This is how you're meant to, to be, to share, to illuminate, to enlighten. Right. I'm the interface, right? So, and I love the way that you said that because it, it is what, I, it is my service. And, um, and it's, and it, and it has, it, it, ha it comes out in two ways. One is the product, right? The product of the service, which sustains me, helps me pay my rent and, actually pays my rent and <laughs> and everything else that a person needs to, to survive in this, in this culture. But the other, the interface is um, how I deal with the information and how I deal with not knowing how I deal with not being sure of, of what I do know, how I deal with frustration and not feeling good enough to, to be that interface and the way that I have to live my life in order to really show up to create. So above my studio door is that old, that old phrase, uh, before enlightenment, carry wood, chop water, after enlightenment, carry wood, chop water, right? So it's, it's an act of faith. It's an act of showing up. It's an act of service where um, really it's, I have to um, exercise, eat well, and go to bed early in order to show up patient with a sense of play. And I create best that way. And if I haven't done that, I can't create. I'm too tired. So another one of those posts about the, the trope of the tortured artist is absolutely doesn't exist for me. If I'm tortured, I can't create. If I'm sad, I can't create. If I'm tired, I can't create. That doesn't, that's not to say that I'm not actively creating or doing using those skills in other ways or, or ways in my life. It's just that to sit down and, and make something, there has to be kind of an open door between me and the universe. It, it, you know, there has to be an invitation. And, and that invitation really comes with feeling clear. And then, then flow. That's when flow happens, when you just get the hours rush by. And I'm and I and the and I know it's like, oh, this is what I need to do. And I don't know how I know that, but that's 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 the interface, right? Is just being open to it. And then the service, that's the service is showing up. 
being to work on time because I have hours. I mean, I work at home and I have hours that I have, that I'm, my synapses are snapping, right? I mean, they're going and it's between eight and three, usually at the latest, unless I'm really on a roll. But people say, do you wake up in the middle of the night and paint? No. Do you wake up in the middle of the night and write things down? No, I'm sleeping. <laughs> but uh, that's my, that's, yeah, that's how I have to show up in order to, to be able to serve. And you figured that out. You figured it out that taking care of yourself means that you become a more potent gift to, well, to yourself and to the world. But it exactly. begins with the awareness of what it is that you need to do to serve yourself first so that you can then serve others. Yeah. It sounds and, like pretty committed to that. Oh, it's my life. That's my life. And I'm fiercely protective of it and, and completely in love with it. I love my life. Um, I don't love every moment. I mean, everybody's got bad, bad hours and bad days. There was a time that um, coming out of a bad relationship, it, it was so abusive that it just, it, that was the first relationship that, that got in the way of my work. And so it had to go. So I had to reestablish my relationship to my work. And at one point, I just couldn't make it happen. And I got so enraged that I took this, took a sleeve just and, and, and wiped off the painting. And then I, I was still angry and I threw the painting across the room and I picked it up and I just stabbed it with a ballpoint pen. And it completely exploded and fell apart. And then I threw it outside in the rain. And then I had dinner with a friend a couple of days later. This was in the winter, uh, pre-COVID. And, and I told him about it and he said, he goes, that's incredible. Are you going to, did you keep it? And I said, well, it's out in the rain. He goes, you should go get it. So I, I grabbed it from out of the rain and it smelled so good. It smelled like oil paint and rain. And I decided that he goes, you should show that. I thought, you know what? You're right. You're right. So I call the piece rain and rage. And I'm going to show it at my next show. And I'm going to talk about how it's okay to not be able to, to make things work, that to be, it's okay to be angry. It's okay to, to express rage. And that it was really important part of my progress to get that out of my body, just to get it out. And how beautiful to have had a friend to recognize that, to help me recognize that. Um, yeah, it was kind of a beautiful full circle. And then after that, things started to get better. And then, and then the plague baby thing, and then just a complete renaissance in my life, in the studio, so much joy. Um, and I can't wait to, I call it firing up the studio, which is basically um, turning on the computer so I can listen to podcasts and then turning on the two lights in the studio. <laughs> but yeah, all, all these wonderful stories that are along the way of triumph. And they may be small triumphs in the end, but for me, they were game changers. Earlier, you said that creativity might not be something that everyone thinks is accessible to them. And as you went on to explain the power of creativity and how it's rooted in love, and everyone has access to love, if, I, if I've understood that correctly, I wondered, what do you think would happen in the world if more people believe they had access to creativity 
I believe that it would it would it would modify people's decision making. It would it would give people more um, how to say this. If 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 you if you allow yourself to love in whatever minutia or, or large uh, or, or wider way of looking at the world, if you allow yourself to pay attention to the things that you love, then your behaviors change, decision, your decision-making changes. You, it, it's easier to tell when you're being coerced. It's easier to understand the, um, the ways in which our society puts ideas in our head that, that ultimately become decisions that don't even belong to us. And, uh, and it's really, really important to know the difference because it, you're not being controlled anymore. And your decision-making is based on something that's so rich and so endless and so deep that it will, uh, that your, your life becomes, like I was saying earlier, you have, you have agency. So it could be, it could be if, I, if you're not enjoying what you're doing, why aren't you doing what you're doing? What is it about it that you, that you don't like? And be able to determine, I don't like the environment or I don't like the, the, what the company is doing or I don't, or, or why you're stuck in it. it the, the more that you pay attention to things that you love, the more you're able to trace back decisions made that weren't based on love and how you got to where you are. And all of it matters, whether, it, whether it's the food you eat or the job that you do, um, it all makes a big difference in how you how you feel about yourself, how connected you are to yourself. And that seems to be a theme for you uh, to be square with yourself. Like you gave the example of Cezanne and the apple. It's this idea of what you put your attention to can then breathe new life into the object or see it from a different perspective and all it takes is your attention. What are you paying attention to right now? That's a really good question. So during the earlier part of the pandemic, uh, the spring, uh, I, a completed thought along with the title of the completed thought crash landed into my head with the result of me laughing out loud, which was the plague babies. And so here we are, in a world shut down and one of the most, if not the most beautiful spring times I've ever seen in Seattle, there's, there's no airplane, no car sounds, just children playing and a live jazz every Friday down the street. It was, it was the most brilliant moment to be alive. And when this idea occurred to me, I knew intrinsically that, that it would be a lifeline because it was play. It was an invitation to play. And so it took a while to get the design of the, of the so the plague babies, the, this whole concept, these little, these little characters. And I, and I knew that all of the years that I had, I, I've been working, whether it's painting or textiles, um, all of that came together in this one little delightful creature. And, uh, and then it began to take on a life of its own. And I'm, and I'm, I'm so in love with this idea. It literally gets me up in the morning. I'm, I'm so excited to see what's going to happen next. And I fall in love with them. Like these, these, I'll take them into my bedroom. I've even as gone as far as putting them into bed with me. 
and I created uh, the Plague Baby Adoption Center so that children can then be um, adopted by new families and they each have their own particular um, um, personality and set of likes and dislikes. And it's also really interesting because it's a communal kind of uh, creative effort. And, and the project is kind of going in all these different wonderful directions. But who knew that it would take a pandemic and a moment of quiet and this beautiful spring for this idea to have the opportunity to, to occur and then grow and continue to grow in the way that it has. It's been absolutely marvelous. What's being incubated in your studio is now rippling out and having an impact on others in the world. What do you, what do you make of that? It's, it's, it's extraordinary and it's different than, than the paintings because the paintings have a kind of a wow factor. It's like, oh, you did this thing. And if you're not a painter, like I'm not a musician, I think mu music is just purely magic, right? And so I can only think that when people look at a painting, they think that, that that's magic, that that idea exists. But with the plague babies, it's a very different thing. It, it, there's a different ways to look at it. Some people look at them and think, oh, that's cool. There's just no connection whatsoever. But what they are is they are an invitation to play. They're an invitation to put yourself into this whole world that um, is this universe that I'm creating. And when people play, they, they, talk, they talk in a way that, that as though that, that they're real. And when I talk to people about it, I talk as the spokesperson, the house mom for the adoption agency. So it's always we. Well, we believe that <laughs> we understand that sometimes the children bite and we understand <laughs> that they get moody. Um, and it, it's, it is play. It's play. And, it, and at the time during the pandemic, it was an emotional lifeline. And I wanted it to be an emotional lifeline for other people too. And so when I would post a Plague Baby, so I did just to try it out in the world, I did a 30-day event, adoption event, where every day would be posted a child. And, and then there would be this whole uh, profile about individually about what this child was like. So it gave me an opportunity to use my writing skill, my photography skill, to try and express, because it was all new. I had to get a new camera. I had all this kind of stuff to, to get it all set up. And it went swimmingly until one day, Mossy Sparkles didn't get adopted, which was very upsetting because she was very, very cute. She had, she had a sequin hat and she's really marvelous. And so I got kind of upset about that. So then I, I decided that Mossy Sparkles ran away. So when I told people that Mossy Sparkles had run away, people immediately became concerned. Have you found Mossy Sparkles? Where is Mossy Sparkles? Is there any word about Mossy Sparkles? I was like, you know, I don't know. I haven't heard anything Nobody's found her, but I'll, I'll let you know. And so I'm thinking, well, how, okay, well, now that I've set that up, where did she go? <laughs> so, so a friend of mine, um, we wanted to go to, to the flight museum and there was almost nobody there and you still had to wear masks and everything. So I took Mossy Sparkles in my purse to the flight museum and, and uh, looking around for an opportunity of where she might've ended up. And there was a lunar landing exhibit and nobody was looking. And I put her 
uh, on near near some rocks. So you could you could see her in the photograph, and then I I photoshopped out the wall and photoshopped in stars, and then I created a ransom note <laughs> that she had been taken and was on the moon, and now people were very concerned, and they said now they wanted to adopt her. I was like, well, I'm sorry, I would love for you to adopt her, but she's on the moon, and so uh, some time went by, and then but the. The ransom note talked about, um, it was pretty basic. The, the person wanted a few ham sandwiches and some cookies and things to drink, and it has to be in a certain location in exchange for Mossy Sparkles. <laughs> and then and then nothing, dead air. And then uh, there was another letter from the moon, from um, management, apologizing for the rogue employee, and that, that rogue employee would be, retriment, ret, uh, uh, would be fired, basically. And that they were going to to return Mossy Sparkles that day with their greatest apology in the hopes that the relationship with the Earth people hadn't been damaged in any way. <laughs> and so I put a little Band-Aid on her and she found her new home. So on, on one level, it took a lot of work to get her adopted. But on the other hand, if I was going to play, I'm just going to take it as far as it could go. You know, so what what I love about it the most is that anything's possible anything's possible they could do anything say anything and then people play along it just becomes more the, the world widens their world widens so the more people i can get to play the better i read somewhere that one of your favorite phrases is if there's a fork in the road take it and you elaborated on that the choices were no longer left or right because nobody cares what direction you go. But it's this idea of, of almost like being, being creative is the journey, is the point. I mean, that's what, that's what I got out of your story. Those weren't your words there. But, um, but to come back to what you said at the end that had a, such an impact on me, it wasn't talent that made the meaningful choice to truly live. It was getting better at the skill of hearing myself and acting upon choices that felt right to me. Whether you are a scientist, a parent, a mail carrier or daydreamer, creative thinking takes you out of the rat race and into the realm of ownership, ownership of your life and choices. And that is definitely a creative skill. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you for 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 reading that. The fork in the road. When I my, coming across that that phase for the first time, I thought that's a brilliant description of of a shift. And so, creative thinking is realizing that maybe at one point in time, we might have a very black and white way of looking at things, and then the fork to think of it just a complete up upending of that other of of the question in the first place is oh there's a fork oh that's useful I'll take the fork <laughs> you know and I always like to think of it almost like a if you think of like a, a wet piece of tissue paper but it's this membrane it's this delicate membrane between you and 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 any other way of thinking and it looks by for all intents and purposes like a wall but you can just put your finger through it and it falls through so all you really have to do is ask a different question and then a whole world of possibilities opens up around that question the question isn't am i creative or not it's 
what's a different way of looking at this particular situation? Or how can I be uh, authentically thankful for, for this situation or, or something within this situation? Because really that, that coming back to love, love kind of frees your mind. It opens up these pathways in your brain. The very chemicals in which your brain produces when you're appreciating something are different. And you can utilize that, those chemical changes in order to open up the possibilities and the pathways of thinking a little bit differently about something. And in the doing of that, then you do it again and then again and then again. And so you're creating your own personal language between you and the universe, between you and, and, and source. And it's yours. And that makes an artist of you, right? In a sense, it makes your creative effort, um, your own personal relationship to your life and some things become intolerable once, you, once you're there. You begin to realize how uncomfortable or unfortunate or, or bad decisions you may have been making about all the things in your life. Because our life is a moment-to-moment -moment occupation, right? It's something that we're living with every moment of every day. And we can make those choices. And the more accustomed we are to making choices that are more in attunement with the things that we care about and things that we love, then the more we're going to enjoy the outcome of those choices. Indeed, yeah. indeed. And I'm, I'm noticing how generous your definition of creativity is. And I love that because it widens, it widens the lens of how someone who didn't previously imagine that they too are creative could adopt that label it took me decades to see myself as creative when my chosen career path from the age of 21 on was in service of creative professionals. I was a professional art rep for decades and photography and graphic design and, and then onwards to own my own gallery. It, I feel like because I don't paint, or create objects of art, and yet I'm endlessly fascinated by them. I'm here to serve those that can. I think about uh, my my living space is uh, a temple, and so when if I'm a little tired and I have dishes, I think do the temple dishes make the temple bed, clean the temple living room, because then there's a kind of a joy in straightening up. And um, I have shifts during the day where, where I come into the studio and then when I'm, when, when I'm done uh, for the day, then there's this, this middle part where I, I kind of was a little bit uncomfortable with because I didn't know what to do with the rest of my day. It's like, no, I'm an artist. And then now what am I? And, I, and then during COVID, that completely changed because that's when I saw would, would sit and watch movies and sew. The plague babies in their little clothes and their little sleeping bags and their little pillows and all this stuff. Um, so in between, there would be, uh, uh, I observe an early dinner. I eat at four and do, uh, and so I would eat. And then, and then the second part of my day. And it just felt like play. It felt like if I could see myself when I was little as an adult, I was like, yes, 
being adults going to be so cool? Because it was sort of the same. I would sit in my rocking chair in the mornings and read. And and uh, or, and then when I would come home, I would make things. I was always making things. It was my, it was just a, I never really gave it any second thought. And in the end, um, I'm the same person in so many ways. So it's been during the really difficult times of the, the shift of being from childhood to adulthood and then deconstructing the things that I was told and then coming out of that uh, with this absolute d- direct parallel to the same person I've always been. But now I have better skills. I have life skills. I have um, creative skills because I've been doing this for 20 years, right? So when I, when I got around to doing the Plague Babies, it, just, it was just this very fluid event because my grandmother taught me how to sew. I've been making little things for my Snoopy since I was a tweener, right? <laughs> and so the whole thing kind of came together. But now it's this sort of, now at my age, one of the things that I'm really loving about my age is that I'm moving into mastery, a mastery of the things that I'm working on. So I can convincingly create something really interesting, so I'm not fighting the process anymore. I'm really getting out of my own way. And when I get those ideas, I, I pay attention to them. Like do this or make that or try this or try that. And, and so I'll be, I'll be running around. I'm even during COVID, I'm putting my mask on and go to Goodwill because I need sparkly sweaters. And I'm going to find one. <laughs> Come home, this huge bag of things. Um, you mentioned that uh, at this stage of your career, of your humanhood, you're, you're enjoying the state of mastery. And when I hear that, um, what I'm imagining you mean is that your ability to see a vision through and tell the story so well that your audience is with you. And, and there's an example I have of that, but I want to check in with you and be like, is that a good description of of mastery or is there more you want to add? Um, I think that that's a really great observation. And I think it's, that's the second part of the picture, right? Because that's the part where other people see the creation. So the before part of it is when I'm, you know, when I'm actually making something from nothing. And um, there's a sort of communication that I'm getting. Uh, and it's clear as day. It's like somebody's talking in my ear. Um Whereas something I did not know a second before I now know, like I've had to, I exhausted all of my resources before when we were in lockdown of making little hats and, and suits for the plague babies. I had, I had a lot of old material from clothes that I had made for me for, for 20, 30 years. And I was making the plague babies out of those things, but then I ran out. And so, and then I was using socks for their hats, but the socks were too tight and it made their heads all squishy. And so I was like, I need new hats. And then uh, this thought occurred to me about how to do the hat. It was just a complete idea. And now because of the mastery, I know to pay attention to that. I knew, I know I can feel it like a reverberation, like a, like a chord, like a harmony in my body. And I was like, that's the idea. And then I do it and I do it and it's perfect. And I don't know how that happens. That didn't used to happen before. It's the weirdest thing. It's the weirdest thing. I'm tr- I trust myself. I think that that's the biggest part of mastery is trusting, trusting when you know something's not working and trusting when you know that something is. And that's not to say that it's all, that's always the case. Sometimes I, there are days I just suck at painting 
and I have to do something else. I'm going to just work on something else. I'm going to work on my writing or I'm going to clean the house. Or, uh, but you know what they said, the studies done on, on, on your, your best hours, usually the really solid four hours a day is when you get your best work done. And I just use those four hours for something else. It's okay. It'll come back. That's part of the mastery too. Let it go. You don't have to force it. It'll come. And it does in the most weirdest times. It just sort of pops in my head. But letting your brain cogitate on it, letting your subconscious work on it for you, that took me a while to trust. So I figured if I don't figure it out now, I'm never going to figure it out. Not the case. Not the case for me anyway. Yeah. So that's a fuller picture of, of flow, of trusting yourself and trusting your ideas. Yeah. And because I've known you as an artist since the 90s, I always imagined there were backstories to your paintings. They just appeared that way to me. That um, even the first piece I ever bought from you, Gracie's Other Hat. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great one. That's a great piece. That was a watercolor, yeah. Yeah. And... You know, I just imagined the life that Gracie had lived, you know, in how she was holding herself. And um, there was a lot of fantasy and, and whimsy and also reverence, you know, to her. And even though I've experienced your art in the decades since, it was the show at Bonfire in 2018 about the face of, of Hakate. Hecate, yeah. Hecate, thank you, the face of Hecate. And you told the story in a video of Demeter and Persephone. And if I'm not mistaken, the what was illuminated in the story had to do with the perception shift. Like when she laughed, when she changed her sorrow of losing her daughter in the earth because her uncle Hades had stolen her to the underworld, had kidnapped her. When she laughed, it, it changed everything. She transformed her sorrow into something different, into something wider. And then she could see clearly with, with new eyes from a different emotional state. She knew exactly where her daughter was. And I thought that was remarkable. And when I watched that video in the gallery, I then came back out and looked at your art all over again. And there was so much more meaning in the characters and in their settings and in what you might be saying. And of course, I'm interpreting this through my lived experience, not through yours as the artist, but it was really fun to imagine what you might be saying. And it occurred to me that you you get to, there's this privilege as an artist of storytelling, of creating a world like you have with your plague babies. And I'd love to hear a little bit about what, what that does for you to be able to express yourself so completely in that way. That show, uh, I saw the face of Hecate. I remember I created this character. She was this stooped character with these 
skulls down her back. And the look on her face was something like a, you just look over your shoulder and you see something and a snap of a finger, it's gone. But she's looking right into you. And, uh, and then I knew exactly who she was. And then I formed the whole show around it because I love this character. Hecate is um, a, a goddess of the underworld, a, a kind of a, a person who's at the crossroads to uh, help people in, in varying ways to, to negotiate this, this place between the upper and the lower, which can be kind of seen as a subconscious conscious right? It's the same idea. There's so much going on in the subconscious. And, um, and my work really is, uh, is touches on um, both of those realms simultaneously. And a lot of the, because in, um, psychologically speaking, our healing has to, there has to be some connection between the subconscious and the conscious to be able to to be conscious of things that are that are happening and old wounds and uh, that that we're still suffering from even though we don't know it, but that also that that darkness is not so people sometimes in, in my experience have misunderstood what that darkness means. And when they think of darkness, they think of serial killers or people who harm, but really that darkness is insecurity. Um, that darkness is, can be self-hatred. That darkness can be things that you love that other that you don't think other people would understand. Um, so being friends with that part of herself, I, there was a monk that was talking. He kept repeating the other day. I loved him for it. He kept saying, "Be friends, be friends." So to to connect those two things is what is what that expression is. It's this playful playful way of saying you can have. You can own that darkness and let it let it be a part of you. Let it be a part of the richness of of the 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 textual richness of your of your psyche, instead of denying it. Instead of pretending, and that's another cultural problem. And and um, deconstructing is uh, we're always supposed to be happy. We always tell women smile, you know, which makes me murderously angry. These stories are there to help us understand the the ways that in which our brain works, and that when Demeter is looking for Persephone when she before she met Hecate she didn't she didn't know where she was and she was a she's a goddess of the harvest and when when her life was messed up there was it it killed off every living thing it just the world became a gray place and then when she met Hecate and laughed and she was able to ask a different question then that's when um in this mythology that the the seasons were born and so we have seasons within us too. There are times when we have to go in and we have to sit with it, feel it. Because now as, as we know more and more about, about psychology, if we don't feel those feelings, they have nowhere to go. And they change you, they contort and form you. So some people live with such anger and such disappointment in the world and in themselves because of this unprocessed trauma. So that trauma is a wounded child, right? Again, it's an invitation to play. It's an invitation to come into a different space. I'm try, I'm my, my, it's my attempt at making it okay to have darkness and light at the same time. And that's a joy. And sometimes people are, are, are afraid of my work. People would walk by my booth when I was doing art fairs and say, nope, and walk right by. Or people look at me right in the face and say, I don't like it. It scares me. And which I thought would said a lot more about them than it did about me. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> But I kind of felt bad for them a little bit. Like, I, okay, I mean, that's fine. It wasn't. It wasn't offensive to me, but it made me a little sad that that what we were talking about that earlier on, 
is um, that accessibility of taking a minute for something that you don't understand to look to look at it in a different way, to observe it without judgment and to ask questions. Because a friend of mine, actually, this is a great story. Oh, he's such a sweetheart. When I first met him and he saw my artwork, he was he hated it. He was really afraid of it. And he told me, somebody else told me that, and I mentioned it to him and he was mortified because he didn't want me to know. And I told him, I said, it's completely okay that you don't like it. But I said, I just want you to consider why. Like, what is it about it that you don't like? And he goes, well, it's scary. And I said, well, what, it, what about it scares you? He says, well, the skulls. I said, so the bones in your own body scare you? And he said, well, no. And I said, well, what do you think that it might mean some, uh, in, in terms of symbology? And so we had this wonderful conversation. He Now he just, he loves my work. And another friend of mine recently said, do you know what you taught him? And I said, no. He said, you taught him what art is. I was like, oh, that's really, that's very true. So in some ways I feel like maybe, and I hope that I can be a liaison between something that someone doesn't understand and then comes to understand or whether or in some cases, of course, implicitly understand, but yeah, that's how it feels. It feels like an, I'm, I'm an ambassador of the psyche, right? Yeah. Put in the, put in the, in context of my friend who saw my work one way and then was trans, like had this transformation of understanding and then seeing it in a completely new way is really indicative of this, of this way of seeing things. And one of my other favorite uh, types of, of painting is abstract. I'm so in love with Motherwell, Robert Motherwell. And he did these giant black and white, huge paintings. And there's something about it that takes me all the way back to childhood when I would sit on my bed and kind of gently rock and look out the windows. And I would find the alphabet in all the tree branches and I would find pictures and faces and things. That's kind of my first educator where trees and so abstraction is is i mean nature is an abstraction clouds are an abstraction um and so i've started to do paintings that are, that, that put uh, both figuratism and abstraction together so that i can have both my loves in the same place uh but i mean you know if you're taking it out of the realm of artwork and into um, taking that same concept of the transforming the way that you think about things into the world, into your relationships with other people, obviously yourself, but with other people or things that you to examine things that you might have once thought of in one way and examine that a little more deeply to find out where those attitudes are coming from. Was it somebody that someone taught you? Was it something innate yuck? I mean, you're like, I don't, I'm not, I don't like peas. And you can't convince me to like them because I was born not liking peas. It kind of sucks because peas are really pretty little vegetable, but, you know, what do you do? Um, and it's kind of interesting to look at the lineage of your own thoughts and, and, um, and to see where that might take you and how it might change your mind about um, continuing to think that way or opening up the possibilities of, of uh, trashing that, that viewpoint for a new one um, and an open-ended one, not replacing it with a necessarily definitive viewpoint, but an, an open viewpoint. Let, let, let yourself be influenced and changed by the world, by, the, by what you may, may not have seen before. And that, that, is, that is the very crux of creativity because you're taking disparate things and creating something new out of it, creating meaning, making meaning. And that's what people do, right? We make meaning out of the world. And what kind of meaning are you making? What does the world mean to you? 
Do you want it to be something that you're controlled by, or do you want it to be based on the basis of uh, of your of love, how you the, your interface of love in the world? I also hear you talking about something that might be a core ingredient to healing this this time we're living in, the polarization that we're living in with so many groups of people being othered. And so where is it that we can lean into something that we previously overlooked or ignored and create a new understanding or a new idea? The only thing that's going to save us. We have to change our minds or we're all going to die. I mean, we're going to die anyway, but not to get morbid, but, uh, you know, we, we don't have a lot of time left to change our mind, to change our attitude about what, what we've got going on here, this beautiful place that, uh, that we are crushing because of the things that we, we believe. And what's going on in Afghanistan, it's like all the root of all those things are belief systems that came from somewhere. Where did they come from? Why are they there? What's happening? The divisions in our own country, it, 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 it just reverberates in a bigger and bigger and, and, and bigger way. As we now understand for the pandemic, this global situation and how people are handling that individually and collectively. But the collective, the collective is a really is a really important. We have to at least try and get on the same page about certain things, like making sure that grandchildren and children survive, because we don't have a lot of time left. So creative thinking in all in all realms is what we really need. That's what we really need right now. It'll save us. And I know that we're coming up on the end of our hour together. Is there anything that I haven't asked you, Julie, that you'd like to share? Um, something you'd, you'd like Pink Noise listeners to know about their ability to access creativity? Uh, the thing that comes to mind is when I was been doing meditations recently, doing guided meditations, there's one, there's a woman, and I really love her manifestation meditations. And at the end, she says, I love you. And it just made me feel so good. So that's what I want to tell your listeners. I love you. I love you. I love you too. It's so good to see your face. <laughs> so good to see well, yours. What a good hour. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for spending time with me. Anytime. A big takeaway for me has been to witness the passion that Julie has to explore what else is possible. This curious inquiry had her step away from what she was taught. Like many of us, we were led to believe that what the world had in store for us looked a particular way. This was based on the environment we were raised in and what appeared to be normal behavior. When that doesn't fit who we are, we suffer from a lack of belonging and continue on often depressed about our lack of choice. It's an act of courage and bravery to do anything different than what's on the menu. And the pivot for Julie was the day she read the art book about Medigliani and claimed her identity as an artist. She realized then that choosing art meant that her biggest endeavor was not just to create, but to create her entire life from scratch. 
This is the gift of being open to possibilities. Find what you love and then go do more of that. How do you know what you love? Tune in. Slow down. Listen to your heart. It has always known. Just yesterday at Float Seattle, I observed a saying on the entry wall. It read, The quieter you become, the more you hear. Not only is this true during meditation in a float tank, but I believe it's true in my daily life and especially true in connection with others. When I finally learned to stop listening for my turn to talk, but listening to hear what the other person is really wanting me to know about them, our connection grew stronger and I felt more in sync. For me, this is what it means to be more fully alive and present. Present to what's happening in the world around me and what's happening to the people around me. The quieter I become, the more I hear. Oh, and before I forget, there's one quote that Julie used that's hanging in her studio. Before enlightenment, carry wood and chop water. Did any of you catch that? I think what she meant to say is carry water and chop wood. (laughs) So for any of you perfectionists listening, I got you. Next week, my final hour-long episode of season one is a conversation with Sarah Schneider. We talk about what makes life juicy, relearning vulnerability, and how our resistance shows up as teacher. Once again, the magic of slowing down will be revealed from yet another life coach master. I hope you'll tune in. Until then, keep mining and shining the gold within. I love you.